Hello and welcome to the Better Human Podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a lawyer specialising in human rights. And this podcast is all about human rights. This episode is about the environment, climate change and human rights. And I'm joined by Molly Lipson, who is an Extinction Rebellion activist. And she is part of the Notables team, which works with high profile people and celebrities who support Extinction Rebellion. And she's also a part of Extinction Rebellion Liberation, a group working on issues around anti-oppression. I'm also joined by Tobias Garnett, who is a human rights lawyer and is on Extinction Rebellion's legal strategy team. And I'm finally joined by Kena Yoshida, who is a colleague of mine at Doughty Street Chambers, and she's also a research officer at the Centre for Women, Peace and Security at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Her practice specialises in human rights, gender equality and LGBTQ plus discrimination. And she researches the links between environment, the gendered causes and impacts of violence against women and structural inequalities. She worked at the Women's Link Worldwide, strategically litigating women's rights cases. The Better Human podcast is very kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. And if you're interested in studying law, applications are now open. You can learn more at gold.ac.uk forward slash law. If you find the Better Human podcast interesting or useful, then please consider contributing a couple of pounds a month through our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And you can follow us on Twitter, Be Human Podcast, or email me on adam at betterhumanpodcast.com. So welcome um, all three to the podcast. Um, we've got Molly, Tobias and Kana here. Um, and we're going to start, I think, with Extinction Rebellion, because I'm, I'm guessing a lot of people listening will have heard of Extinction Rebellion and will have some idea of, of what you're about, but some people won't. And, and could you just give a, a very brief explanation of, of what Extinction Rebellion is, which I think we'll probably talk about as XR um, for, for short. Yeah, so Extinction Rebellion is a, a social movement based on nonviolent civil disobedience, otherwise known as direct action. Um, and um, it, it's kind of a, a theory of change that involves um, many different elements which have been pulled from, from quite profound academic social science research um, into what kind of what does push change on a mass level a sort of you know political level um policy level um so we incorporate all these different elements pulled from the research um though we also recognize that what we are doing is is unprecedented given the sort of existential nature of this particular crisis um and that whilst we are kind of based on the backs of other civil disobedience movements obviously martin luther king gandhi suffragists um that we we are doing something that is different, which is that we are not necessarily um, protesting unjust laws, but protesting uh, a sort of more wide ranging issue. And my own um, position in XI is that I work with our um, sort of uh, high profile and celebrity supporters. Um, and uh, as well as that, I work on um, a group called XR Liberation, which is a, an anti-oppression group uh, working both on internal and external issues around that. And how did you get involved in XR? Um, so my background's actually in um, American criminal justice reform. Um, so I've done a lot of work around the abolition of the death penalty, mass incarceration, juvenile detention, solitary confinement, all of that. And once you start um, understanding <coughs> those issues, you um, very quickly come to understand systemic oppression. And 
then you can't really avoid how the climate crisis um, plays into that and how those play into the climate crisis as well. So um, I eventually came to kind of hear about XR and um, the availability of, of this role that I'm in now was was kind of was there. And um, I quit my job the next day pretty much and uh, been involved ever since. And Tobias, you, you, you work in the legal strategy team and you're a human rights lawyer. So you're coming at it from a slightly different perspective. How did you get involved in the movement? Yeah, as you say, my, my background is in human rights law. Um, I worked in Turkey um, with refugee crisis and trying to get journalists out of jail there. I spent the last two years um, in America on a fellowship at a university there, uh, focusing a lot more on kind of climate policy. Um, and I think I watched from over there um, the April Rebellion. Um, and my, my feeling is, if you um, read what the IPCC um, uh, the UN's body on climate change says, they say, we've known for decades what the problem of climate change is. We have a good idea about how to solve it. What we need now is political will. And it seemed from over across the other side of the Atlantic that Extinction Rebellion was making good headway in um, building that political will. So when I got back to the country uh, this summer, um, I got in touch with XR um, and uh, offered my experience um, coordinating uh, legal defences and um, legal strategy. Um, and uh, yeah, that's how I got involved. So one thing that I wanted to focus on today, and, and because this is a human rights podcast, is really how the, you know, if you were to draw a Venn diagram with the environmental movement in one circle and the human rights movement in another, and maybe Kena, we'll, later we'll talk about the, the women's rights movement as well in, in the other circle and how that all fits together with your work. In that middle section between environmental rights and human rights, like, where are we and, and how does that, how are environmental rights, human rights and vice versa? I think um, probably to start off with, it's important to remember that we have many, many international legal frameworks which operate at the same time. So you have international environmental law and you have international human rights law. And traditionally, um, climate change and the environment has been thought of within the rubric of international environmental law. You've had now a movement called the greening of human rights law, where a lot of treaty bodies, that's the UN treaty bodies that uh, you and Aoife Nolan discussed before, um, have began to really recognize that the different rights contained within those conventions um, also have uh, a climate change dimension to them. Uh, so, for example, uh, the right to life contained uh, in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights has now been interpreted as recognizing that climate change affects all our right to life. And we can say the same about the right to health, for example, and also really importantly, the right to culture as well. Um, so that means that the uh, climate breakdown affects many, many indigenous peoples' uh, rights to culture and traditional ways of life. And you've mentioned two rights there, the, the right to culture and also the right to health, which aren't part of, of the European Convention on Human Rights, um, which was more, and, and, and for anyone who wants to listen to the, the, the previous podcast that I did with Aoife Nolan, we, we spoke about this quite a lot, that the that social rights didn't really get incorporated into the binding European Convention. Um, but do you, do you think there's enough wriggle room within the rights there, that sort of the right to privacy, the right to life, the right to 
um, I guess, not to be inhumanly treated to create a kind of right to a safe environment? Or is it, does, do we need more binding social rights to get there? So I think there's a number of things to say in this. The first thing is we are far too guilty in the West of using Europe as the paradigm example of human rights when actually the human rights protections for the environment are much, much better developed in other regional systems. And so you have specific protections of the right to a healthy environment in the African Charter of human and people's rights in the Maputo Protocol as well, which is the additional protocol on women's rights. So listeners of this podcast, for example, might be familiar with the European Convention on Human Rights, which is a regional uh, convention um, binding states with regards to human rights obligations. Um, You have similar um, conventions or treaties in other regional systems Not all regions have them, but uh, the African Charter is one example, and also the uh, inter-American system also has the American uh, Charter on Human Rights as well. And these bodies uh, either have specific rights uh, in relation to the healthy environment or have uh, recent, for example, advisory opinions, um, which have made it clear that the right to a healthy environment falls within the scope of um, of those regional treaties and conventions. So let, let's go back to the um, to the real sort of substance of the um, of the movement in a way. Extinction Rebellion talks about you know a, a lot in terms of emergencies and extinction and this kind of very quite dramatic. If we if we don't deal with this now, we we are in, we are you know it's already too late. How? What is the the basis of that? What What are the things that are going to happen? What's the most worrying thing? That what do, What does Extinction Rebellion want done about it urgently? So, I mean, um, you know, one of the sort of foundational documents that I think uh, XR relies on is the 2018 IPCC report that said um, to limit uh, um, global warming to uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius, which was the sort of uh, limit of what would be considered reasonably manageable. Um, we had to be globally net zero in carbon emissions by 2050 in order to have a 50-50 chance of uh, hitting that. Um, so, and, and they made clear in that report that the next 12 years, now the next 10 and a half years, uh, were absolutely crucial in making progress um, on hitting those targets. So I think, um, you know, XR's sort of foundation of its... Uh, um, urgency is is what scientists are saying and have been saying you know in their multitudes uh, for decades now um so that's sort of where um we're coming from um i think just to pause you there that that's the intergovernmental panel on climate change climate change ipcc yeah. exactly a huge element of um the sort of basis of extinction rebellions climate perspective anyway, is that the IPCC report doesn't go far enough. So it excludes um, information about feedback loops and tipping points, which are um, are essentially pushing things even further forward. It also is based on the idea that the IPCC report um, has many um, of its own restrictions and limitations in the way it's developed, the consensus basis that it's um, put forward on. And um, so, so that policy around the world or you know governments basing their policy on the IPCC reports is equally as as sort of dangerous because 
that report itself is not is not the full extent of the problem. Um, so I think there's that added element as well into the sort of urgency behind XR's message. Does XR use the language of human rights at all? I mean, in, in, in its external communications, internally when you are discussing what to do next and how to approach particular issues or how to communicate on particular issues? Or is it something which doesn't come up very much? I think we do, but possibly not enough or that it's not public enough. So I think that there's a real binary between what is perceived externally about the way that XR functions and how it functions internally. That I think is hugely problematic and something that I'm personally trying to work on. But I think that do you want to just explain what you mean by that or would you prefer sure. not to? <laughs> no, I can I can try. I think that um, there's a lot of very valid criticism. So for example, that we don't um, center marginalized voices, oppressed communities at, at, you know, in our message and not just our message, but as in, in our thinking about the climate crisis. Um, but what I would say to that is that... So just which, which kinds of marginalized communities are the criticisms saying that you don't focus on? So that our message doesn't focus enough on the global south who are without doubt going to be targeted first and worst by the climate crisis already are and in fact have been for many, many years. So these are people who are going to lose their homes to, because the coast is, is coming inwards and they live, on, live in lowlands mm -hmm. um, or their extreme heat is going to lead to them not being able to afford water and have to move, move, move away from where they live. That, that, is it that kind of... Yeah, essentially communities that groups. are already suffering to an extent we cannot possibly imagine here in London, for example, or the rest of the UK, but also that the climate crisis happens in accordance with the systemic and structural oppression that functions and permeates throughout global society. And that without an understanding of that, I think that we're missing a huge element of climate and societal breakdown because it won't happen equally and we need to acknowledge that and it's the same when you're talking about human rights that despite the fact they are meant to be universal we know that they do not apply to people equally and that is a, a huge problem in our global systems um, so I think that there is a mass massive understanding about that internally in XR but we are a mass movement made up of lots and lots of different individuals who come from different perspectives, who have different backgrounds, and that understanding is not equal. And so because we are not based on a centralized system, that certain people will not speak in the same way as others about the issue. It doesn't mean they don't care or that they don't have or that they wouldn't be able to grasp that understanding, but that we are possibly not doing a good enough job at making sure that everybody is you know, really does kind of grasp that this crisis does not happen equally and it will continue to 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 hit certain people first and worse and other people last and least. Um, but just very quickly going back to when you were talking about the Venn diagram as well of climate, of the climate issue and human rights issues, there is no Venn diagram. They are one and the same. Um, and I think that for me is really, really important. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that um, uh, I agree with you completely that XR has a lot of uh, internal and external kind of educational role um, to play. Uh, I think one of the, the crucial kind of um, piece of recognition that, that XR has picked up is that um, 
is that climate change is a kind of systemic question and so it affects all of these other questions as well it's not about just recycling a bit more or eating a bit less beef or flying a bit less it like has really fundamental implications for all kinds of different parts of our lives and of course human rights you know is just one part of that but um you know i agree totally with molly that these things are entirely overlapped kana they're right yeah. to a clean and healthy environment where in the world is that functioning and can you give examples of of when it has actually been used successfully i'm not sure i'm going to be able to answer your question but as i understand it about 155 states currently have uh, laws that approximate to the right to a healthy environment or the right to a clean and healthy environment and they're being used in lots of different ways in different countries around the the world especially in relation to air pollution for example um, there is a global push to recognise it as an international right um, and the Special Rapporteur on the Environment and Human Rights has been really pushing that and he has really helpful reports that you can go and read. But if I can add to that, I think there's also really important debates happening, especially in countries around the global south, calling for ecological rights and not just environmental rights. So it's not just the right to a healthy environment, which is still anthropocentric, but actually looking at the rights of nature Let, let's just pause there and, and talk about anthropocentric yeah um, so so that's about humans like that's wor- right. wor- worrying about rights being all about humans whereas ecological we're getting into you know animals wildlife um plants you know and and, and, and a sort of diversity eco diversity and those sorts of questions that's right And so I think a part of the debate has been, or a part of the journey is this greening of human rights. But for a lot of people, um, that doesn't go anywhere near far enough. And you have specific constitutional protections. For example, the constitution of Ecuador was the first country to recognize the rights of nature within its constitution. Um, There are also other countries that grants natural entities such as rivers and forests, um, legal, legal standing. So legal personhood so just like we grant corporations uh, legal personhood in the same way uh, rivers and forests can be represented in and of themselves and I think it's really important that when we look at examples from countries like Ecuador and Colombia and Bolivia um, New Zealand India um, that this isn't human rights versus nature rights they, they are one and the same thing because our lives are interdependent with nature and and i guess that it shouldn't be it shouldn't just be when the river becomes so polluted that the humans can't drink from it that we intervene that we are able to intervene there should be a step before that and I, and i guess the step before that requires that the legal that the the river has legal personhood or is there some other way of triggering a review of what's happening to this beautiful you know ancient river that's being you know attack from in in certain directions or or a tree or a forest or or a mountain or or what have you that's really i I had no idea that rivers and other um elements of nature could have legal personhood that's amazing (laughs) 
Yeah, and I think the most recent, uh, David Boyd, who's the current special rapporteur um, on the environment and human rights, has a book called The Rights of Nature. You can read it. It's really good. I read it on the beach this summer. It's a really fun read as well. It's very accessible. And he talks through different cases where um, lots of different approaches are being used in lots of different countries. And he really encourages um, everyone to be bold and creative um, and also the fact that we need laws that apply in different ways in different countries depending on the legal systems that we have as well one thing that strikes me from a member of the public perspective about xr um, and thinking about this idea of where the human rights and environmental the environment intersect or, or maybe they cross over completely is that xr seems at least from where I'm standing, to focus very much on the human, emotional, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how to express it. It's, it doesn't, it, it's not, you know, it kind of takes the science as given um, and pushes on the, tries to get people as humans. Um, and I think that's quite an interesting, that's what's different about it, it seems, than other environmental groups and is that something which is a deliberate strategy or is that something which has just evolved i think um xr came came into existence because um despite knowing the science for decades nothing is happening nothing is changing and so i think there was a, a moment of reflection on why that's the case and that perhaps the science just simply isn't moving people. And whether that's right or wrong is a separate question. You know, for some people, it's just inaccessible. For others, um, it's the way it's communicated. And, and again, that's not the that's not a criticism of, of science or science communicators or that whole community, but for whatever reason, it just wasn't getting through. So XR had to take a different stance. And I think that nothing appeals more to humans than humans. And whether that's, again, right or wrong, you know, I wish it was just nature for the sake of nature. Wouldn't that be beautiful? But perhaps that's just not the world that we currently live in and that's something we can aspire to be. But I think that appealing to the emotional elements of our, of, of you know, of climate breakdown and societal breakdown is perhaps what will push people to rise up and, and demand change. I mean, I think that's one of the that's one of the challenges in every human rights issue is how do you get people animated and activated to fight for other people's rights? You know, and 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 I think it goes back to what Kana was saying. It's all it's it's one thing to say you in particular are threatened, you and your family or your your friends are threatened by this particular issue, but to try and get people interested in other people who they may not know and may not ever meet. Whether, so whether it's the global south or a disadvantaged community in their own country is much more difficult. Um, and I think Extinction Rebellion is is very, very good at connecting emotionally. I, I, I mean, one I heard somebody being interviewed about the, the focus on grief, which I thought was just amazing. You know, who would think to focus on grief? It's not something that come, when you're doing your human rights campaigning 101, they don't, people don't start by saying, right, we're going to start with grief. <laughs> because you'd say, oh, that sounds a bit miserable, but, you know, we're going to have a mock funeral. That's how we're going to do it. And I think that's just, it, it, it's a lesson in a way to the human rights world. 
Yeah, I, I think that's definitely right, and and I think that is part of a, a strategy of trying to think about and um, and deal with the reasons that people, as Molly says, are not listening to the science. I mean, the the facts are out there; they're extremely clear, and in many places around the world. I mean, you turn on your TV, you see you know parts of the world on fire that should be under ice. You see people's homes burning. You see people's homes flooding, and that's not that is far away you know in the global south but it's also you know like in this country as well and so i think there is clearly a strategy of thought around why is it what are the obstacles that stop people taking this seriously recognizing the truth of it and the and the urgency of it and i think you know the truth is one of them is that we don't like to think about you know things that are painful things that make us feel vulnerable things that you know we grieve about um, and as you know we read headlines day after day that talk about another species has gone extinct another you know irretrievable forest has been logged or burnt down uh, you know a, a very again human reaction is to build mental um, uh, barricades um, to just shut all of that out and so I think trying to connect with those and break them down and understand the human responses is key part of communication the better human podcast is supported by your contributions if you find it useful and interesting i would really appreciate if you consider giving just three dollars a month that's just over two pounds via our patreon that's patreon.com forward slash better human and if a couple of hundred people do that then that will make the podcast sustainable and i can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. Going back to the Venn diagram, so I, I said that we'd, we'd look at another circle of the Venn diagram, which is women's rights in particular, and obviously environmental rights will cross over with lots of different people's rights um, because of the extreme nature of climate change. But Kaney, you've been looking at the interaction between women's rights, human rights, and environmental rights, if there's if, if I could put it that, that way. Can you talk a bit about the, the work that you're doing at the moment on that? Yes. Yeah, so I think a really important starting point is that the environment has always been part of the women's rights story. And uh, next year, 2020, is a really big anniversary for women's rights. It's the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action, 1995. And it's also the 20th anniversary of the Women, Peace and Security Framework. So there's lots of activism going around the world right now. And in Beijing, we saw there's a, there's a part of the declaration that says that, you know, women's contributions to a healthy environment have to be central uh, consideration in the 21st century century. And, and that's a really important starting point, because then we zoom forward to 2018, where the CEDAW committee, which is the committee in the elimination of discrimination against women, became the first UN treaty body uh, to uh, enact or elaborate a general recommendation specifically on climate change. And what that document makes clear is that women and girls are differentially and disproportionately impacted uh, by climate change. And that's for a number of reasons. But for example, in many countries, uh, women and girls are responsible for collecting water um, or putting food on the table. It goes back to what Molly was talking about in terms of discrimination. There are certain groups that are differentially and disproportionately impacted, whether that's through environmental racism, that's 
dumping in certain areas instead of others where certain com communities live, um, or the fact that some communities are affected more by the loss of biodiversity, it's forest dwellers, indigenous communities, and then also that re recognition that uh, women and girls are al also impacted in a, in a different way. And what, if anything, is being done in terms of thinking about that and trying to alleviate it? That's a really difficult question. Uh, in general terms, I think, uh, you know, you've seen this in the UN level, you have this new general recommendation. And what CEDAW General Recommendation 37 says is that gender equality is a precursor uh, to obtaining the sustainable development goals. And some of the sustainable development goals as well also talk about the importance of education and it's education really i mean we're now being educated by children from around the world um, who are teaching us how to get active and and to centralize this in our lives but the sdgs also say you know we need to have education around sustainable consumption patterns and, and there's currently you talk about being educated by children around the world there's currently a complaint before the un by I think is it sixteen children from around the world? Is that is that right? As I understand it, that's right. Yeah, and that's it's available online. You can download it um, and read it, and it's a really really interesting document that sets out the the current impact of the climate breakdown on our world today, and also how and how uh, states um, are not uh, complying with their obligations uh, in terms of environmental emissions that we've been hearing about and the impact that this has uh, not only on children today but on intergenerational equity and fairness going forward. Yeah, and, and, and Greta Thunberg is the is the most high profile of those children and, and you can, and, and I think the complaint is to the Committee of the Rights of the Child and you can read it online. And I heard something quite sad the other day that the reason there's no UK child is because we haven't adopted the bit of the um, of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which allows individual complaints. So they've left out the, the, the UK children, which is quite a sad, you know, local issue. That's right. But I think even though there may be states like the UK that aren't included within the complaint in terms of being a, a respondent uh, within the complaint itself, it it's absolutely right to say that the complaint talks about the responsibility of all states within it. Um, and, you know, the UK ha is a polluter in lots of different ways, including in terms of militarism as well, because we know that the military is one of the, the biggest uh, polluters in the world. Um, and so I think the what the complaint does a really good job of is showing the differential impacts on children from around the world so there's children from the Marshall Islands for example we were talking about floodings and oceans and the Marshall Islands is also somewhere with which um, has suffered the catastrophic effects of nuclear testing as well and what will happen if that I mean what if that complaint is is upheld what then is there a judgment is there a um, is there some sort of communication from the UN which binds in any way on other states? 
So there will be a uh, judgment. So the committee will first have to consider whether the complaint is admissible or not. Um, And then if it is admissible, it will go on to consider merits. And then within that judgment, it can provide relief. So these are all legal terms, but basically they will make findings. And if they find against the states, they will say, you know, you need to do X, Y and Z. Um, and the, as I understand it, the complainants have not asked for um, compensation, so they haven't asked for fin- for money, which is what people often do when they go to the courts. But they've asked for things that are more systematic changes that will that will make a difference going forward. Now, bringing it back down to the the streets, um, because we because not not everybody has access to international law, and 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 international law, I guess, is not. It's not the answer. It's and it's part of the answer. XR, its major strategy is disruption. Is that is that is that maybe if I'm am I putting that in the right way that the the stra- the way of getting in front of people is to cause some sort of disruption that will that will affect their daily lives so that they have to they are forced to whether they're confronted by a giant a boat in the middle of the street or a a funeral procession um, that's stopping them getting to work um, or is just on, on a bridge they're, covering, they're crossing. Now, obviously, that brings Extinction Rebellion into regular contact with the local authorities, with the police. How does that affect the, the way that you run the movement or the way the movement operates? Um, I mean, yeah, absolutely, that's the case. I think, you know, Business as usual is killing the planet and is killing people. Um, and so XR absolutely um, is trying to disrupt business as usual. Um, and that's as much in a kind of systemic the system that we're in, capitalism and so on, um, in this form. Uh, and also in terms of people's own heads, you know, um, uh, all of us just thinking about getting to work, you know, getting the kids to school, whatever it may be, that there needs to be some reminder that uh, all of this is going on. Um, you're right, though, that technique and that strategy does lead to quite regular interactions with the police. Um, and in the kind of legal support team, which I'm in um, at XR, we spend a lot of time trying to uh, provide guidance uh, and information to activists who are thinking about getting involved in actions. Um, and, and that is not to sort of give them a legal advice or get them off or any of these kind of things. It's more about... Um, making sure that people are properly informed um, and they know the risks of what they're doing and the seriousness of what they're doing. And I don't think anyone um, who takes part in XR's actions is doing it lightly or because they want to get into trouble or because they like disrupting people. I think uh, if you look across all of our activists, they come from all walks of life, um, all ages, genders, races, um, um, and, uh, and they're there taking time out of their you know, normal lives, as it were, uh, to take this on. So um, we make sure or try to make sure that they are informed as they take on those risks. Um, and then the other thing that we uh, do in the legal team is to try and uh, respond um, to systemic uh, problems in um, with, with justice uh, in the in the country. And, and the most recent one of those was um, this blanket ban that the uh, police uh, put in place in the October rebellion, which banned all XR protests from anywhere in London, um, and which, uh, as the High Court found, um, was uh, an overreach of their powers and unlawful. And and so, just to explain that briefly, that was a 
use of a power under the public law act sorry the public order act um which allows the police to if they have a senior officer at a particular protest they can impose conditions on that particular protest um but the police went further and they said well actually we're going to impose conditions on all extinction rebellion assemblies throughout london which as i thought at the time would include you know, children in a, an assembly in a school who are standing up to support the autumn rebellion um we could include you know all sorts of a million different examples and the high court said that's that was as you say an overreach of their powers um but in a i mean it was a really important win in a way for for the future and and i should say that jude bunting who was is in this chambers was um was involved in on the extinction rebellion side but it was a bit too late for the autumn rebellion because it was already it was only four days left when they imposed the order and the order stood whilst those four days in those remaining four days so do you think there's enough legal protection for protesters do you find that you can use the law to your advantage or are you constantly fighting to um to keep what you have yeah i think a couple of things about that one is um uh people getting involved in protests i think often know that um they're going to be involved in actions that may be breaking the law as it is and i think um they do that uh, uh willingly a lot of them recognizing that um uh the climate crisis is climate and ecological crisis is you know so significant that this is the only way of trying to affect political change um i think you know clearly the police have been struggling uh, uh, to respond to XR's protests, especially its non-violence um, and how uh, large it is. Um, and clearly in the April uh, rebellion and after that, um, the police received a lot of criticism from uh, the government, uh, the Conservative Party especially, um, uh, and uh, tabloid newspapers. And what we've seen in this October rebellion is a response uh, to that, um, which has uh, been characterized by um, uh, over harsh policing, uh, policing that um, has often discriminated particularly against disabled people um, as the police's own uh, watchdog on disabilities criticised for the first time in 20 years, criticised the police openly for uh, their, pro their, their policing of uh, disabled uh, protesters. Um, uh, and so, you know, clearly our uh, win in the High Court was just one pushback against that um, over policing, if you will. But I think the wider lesson to learn here is that, um, and this may sound a bit odd coming from a lawyer, and I know it's a legal podcast primarily, but the law isn't going to save us. The law is just a reflection of what people in society think is reasonable. And the law as it currently is, uh, is not going to uh, save us from a climate and ecological emergency. What it requires is uh, people to come and tell their government that they want change. And that is what Extinction Rebellion is fundamentally about. It's about putting political pressure on the government of the day to say, take this seriously, do something about it. So, you know, rather than looking to scientists, rather than looking to lawyers to save us, rather than looking just to the government to save us of its own accord, you know, part of XR's core call is for all of us to come out and put pressure. It's only when we do that that change of the required magnitude is going to happen. I'd also add as well that, um, that yes, you know, our strategy is based on arrest and, and, you know, nonviolent civil disobedience, but that is 
by no means the only way to be involved with XR. And I think that's another sort of misconception that you have to be arrested, that there's some heroism in being arrested, that that gives you some kind of, I don't know, you know, higher status within the movement. That's absolutely not the case. There's a large number of people who do not feel themselves in a position or do not perceive themselves to be in a position where they can get arrested or want to be arrested. And yet they are just as much a part of this movement as anybody else. And um, I just want to make that really clear. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. And and frankly, what was so outrageous about the the ban um, as it was imposed in October was that it not that it uh, you know criminalised the sitting you know, sitting on top of uh, airplanes or trains. You know, those are criminal already. What it did is criminalised uh, uh, anyone who wanted to join with. Uh, one or more other people in any way to protest about the climate and ecological emergency under exiles banners and Adam's given some examples of the absurd things that were criminalized and illegal then but you know we can also think imagine you know picnics in parks with XR flags these kind of things are obviously should not be criminalized and uh, you know I totally agree with Molly that there are all kinds of ways of getting involved in XR and that was one of protecting the non-criminal sides of the protests was like a really key part of that victory. Kena, just going back to whether the law is going to save us. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, one one thing that I think is, is useful for context is Extinction Rebellion, its methods are, are relatively novel, but the rights of people to protest are very, very long-standing and have ex- existed in, in our law for at least decades and maybe hundreds of years. Um, can, can you talk a bit about the rights we have to protest? To be honest, Adam, I think you're better placed to answer <laughs> that question than I am. I mean, just but perhaps you can talk about yeah. that a little bit. But before um, we talk about protest, I think Tobias is completely right. The law will not save the ecological crisis. There's, you know, there have been lawyers as well who've been arguing that the law is in itself structured in a way that systematically reinforces the ecological crisis. So that means that multinational corporations operate in ways where they are, it is permissible for them to um, produce emissions and fossil emissions and uh, emissions and all the rest of it. Um, so I think that is a really important point. And there is a push that we, we can all make as lawyers as well to improve the legal systems uh, to ensure that they are in fact uh, transforming our society uh, in order to regenerate nature um, rather than um, harming nature as it currently is happening. But I'll, I'm going to let you answer your own protest yeah, question. Yes, so, so I, I, <laughs> very briefly, um, the so, so we have we have a right to protest um, under Article 11 of the Euro- European Convention on Human Rights, and we have a right to free speech under Article 10. And there is a tradition, at least in in the UK legal system of protecting protesters to an extent so sometimes you you will find judges saying things like the 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 dealing with protest cases even where protesters have broken the laws usually trespass or criminal damage laws where they'll say something like the right to protest is of fundamental importance to our democracy we've got to allow people to protest and i think there is a tradition of that but i think you're absolutely right that ultimately the law the criminal law wins out in almost all of the cases because the criminal law is set up in the way it's set up to prevent, to protect private property and also to protect public goods like bridges um, and stop people and, and, and highways, so to stop people blocking highways and bridges. And that, the law is not going to change to allow 
protest activity in on, in those places where where i think there's there's a danger first of all is these kind of um ad hoc injunctions like the police got under the public order act and i'm dealing with a case at the moment about um, fracking protesters where there's in private companies getting injunctions which can be very sort of extensive and quite badly thought out um, about stopping protesting outside of particular places you know stop you know not not being able to not um, being allowed to damage companies even though you might not know what the damage you're doing by standing in, on a street corner um, and I think that there's a creeping rise in those kind of injunction type rights. But I think ultimately, probably where, where we'd all agree is that the the law is only one piece of a much bigger picture um, of social, if you're going to in, institute social change, it has to be across all of society. And it's only when you've got enough buy-in from the key actors, which will be the government, the elites, but also the the general public who put pressure on those people. It's only then that you find you have structural change that will allow, you know, um, the change that you need. Um, and that's where, I think going back to where we were talking about at the beginning, that's where the emotional connection becomes very important, that you can't just, God, we all know now, um, you can't just approach things with facts and say, this is the answer or a nice PowerPoint presentation, this sort of Al Gore approach of a nice PowerPoint. If, if, if only enough people see my PowerPoint presentation, they will change their minds, which I think is also the lawyer's instinct is if just enough people see my amazing argument, my, my lecture, how could they put with my slides? How could they possibly not change their mind? Whereas you're going from, from a quite different perspective, although, you know, you have lawyers and members of the, Influ influences if that makes sense i mean that that's that's your role molly it's one of your roles is bringing in people who are going to have particular influence because they already have influence yeah so i think um sort of two elements of it really one is that this is a mass movement of all people so it really does require everyone and and that includes uh and perhaps perhaps disproportionately uh, places a responsibility on people who have a larger audience and a larger voice in a society where you may argue that shouldn't exist in itself, but it does. And that there are people who have that um, platform. And so part of what I do with XR is to try and you know, support those people in their own sort of quote unquote journey to, to, to XR, to understanding the crisis, the systemic elements of it and how they can use their platforms um, to try and push the message out further. And that also they have um, the exposure to the people that we need to reach the most, which is the government, which is people in positions of power, because, uh, you know, the law might not the law probably won't fix everything, but it's... I, I think we could all agree the law. Yeah. <laughs> the law is not going to fix no. anything. I mean, it may fix a little thing. But, but I that, think... That's what, the best what, we can do, the, the lawyers. That's all we can achieve. Yeah, but yeah. I think what we are asking for is policy change, but sweeping policy change. So not small things. So in that sense, I think maybe there's a bit more credit to the law than, than maybe yeah, we're giving I'm, it. I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm underplaying now. Well, I mean, if, if, you, you, know, if you look at the EU... Actually, and we, we haven't spoken about the EU. It seems like the EU EU law has at least tried to put in place, you know, air pollution um, markers, and you know, these are all 
uh, these are all and, and water pollution as well and these are all challengeable in court so you can actually there seems to be more a little bit more work going on in, in the eu environment than in the domestic environment or is that uh, a misinterpretation I don't know. EU law has some really important principles, such as the precautionary principle. Well, as I as I understand it, it's a principle whereby if you, I mean, this is very broadly speaking, uh, think that something may cause environmental or ecological harms, you are on the side of precaution. So EU law also has really, it's very important in this country because it can be directly effective as well. So you can directly rely upon it in the courts and then you can eventually go to the CJEU. So potentially with the changes that come with Brexit as well, that raises a whole load of questions about um, environmental law in, in this country, which again, as we discussed at at the outset is a is a different framework for tackling um, environmental questions than uh, international human rights law for example and also i, I suppose a, a transnational organization like the eu just like the un is just that bit more likely to be worried about issues that affect the world rather than just the individual countries i, I mean that's the big shame I mean, not to be too political about it about leaving the eu is you lose that opportunity to influence a very large group of of countries with the caveat that within those countries since sort of 1850, you have some of the greatest uh, environmental offenders within them as well. So I think that's also really important to recognize that countries like Germany, countries like France have a, you know, the UK have a long history of uh, fossil fuel emissions and also having multinational companies operating in other, you know, countries we haven't even talked about the extractive industries for example and the effects that has on the environment and also on um, the communities involved so yes really important um, but again I think it's always important to think that uh, these might be protections that we have here but are they protecting the damage uh, the ecological damage that we're causing elsewhere we're going to round up by talking about where, what happens next and I, I don't want you to give away any XR secrets about what, what the next um, rebellion is. We don't know them. We don't know them. Okay, fine. So that's easy. Well, you would, you would say that. Um, the, but I mean, in terms of the next steps for you know, advancing on this issue you know, and, and, and more than just raising awareness, and I know that XR is more than about raising awareness, but we've got, we're about to, when we're recording this, we're about to have a new government. We don't know what that government will be. Is there any prospect of a new government in the UK making a sustainable difference over this issue? Or do you think you're going to be fighting the same battles for quite a long time? I mean, I, I imagine we're going to be fighting a lot of the same battles for some time. Um, you know, from my personal perspective, I think the Labour Party's uh, Green Industrial Revolution uh, is an exciting policy. I don't think it goes uh, far enough. There are unresolved questions on Heathrow, for example, um, and uh, their ambitious 2030 target has since been watered down. Um, but so, other so, that, so that's to be carbon neutral, exactly. net carbon neutral in terms of our emissions. And I exactly. think that they've that they, they said. 2050 and then it became 2030 at conference and now it looks a bit more like we'll try but it's unlikely to happen yeah 
and I think that reflects, you know, the some of the struggles ahead, which is that um, it's absolutely crucial that people from all parts of society um, uh, don't approach the transformation that is necessary uh, with fear, but are um, thought about properly. And this idea of a just transition is sort of thrown around as a as a phrase. But I think we need to think really, really carefully about that. How do we bring communities um, with us? How do we look after communities through what will be a diff difficult um, uh, cultural change, um, uh, change in jobs, um, all that kind of thing? Um, uh, and how do we really look after people as they change? Um, uh, I think other than the Green Party, obviously, which is um, leading the way on, on on this and has been for some time, uh, many of the other parties, I think, are basically not serious about the problem that we face. Um, and so um, unless there's some huge change in and, and the polls are all wrong, um, I think uh, XR is going to have quite a lot of work ahead of it, um, whatever happens in, in this election. Um, and so, you know, the call, as far as I'm concerned, is for more people to join us. Um, you know, since XR has only been around for a year, uh, April was its first big rebellion. In response to that, there was a, a call for a, um, a, a parliament passed a climate emergency. The government of the day um, set a legally binding target of 2050, the first um, country to do that. And those are all uh, admirable things. What we need to do is now um, follow through on some of those uh, uh, um, uh, reasonably bold initiatives with more bold initiatives and actual plans to get there. Um, because as the um, government's own uh, Commission on Climate Change has made clear, uh, these long-term targets are all well and good, but we're currently missing all of our short-term targets. So yeah, I think we're going to be around. Um, I'd add as well that, um, you know, we are fundamentally not a partisan movement. So we don't, in theory, show support for any particular party or candidate. We evaluate everybody and, and every party on their climate credentials as opposed to for example their brexit credentials which we you know we we all know is is a big issue but it's not the only issue and it's not the only big issue and in fact the climate crisis is is probably slightly bigger um but i think the the other kind of side of this actually going back to the law is that extinction rebellion has put forward a three demands bill a parliamentary bill um which i i I'm not sort of clued up enough to speak very articulately on, but um, Extinction Rebellion has three clear demands, which um, I could go into, but essentially it's tell the truth and act as if that truth is real, um, net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2025 and halt biodiversity loss, and to implement a citizens assembly because we don't put forward the solutions as a movement, but we believe that the that we need a more democratic process. So the parliamentary bill could be taken forward by any party. Doesn't matter who get um, you know who comes into power in in this election. Um, so I think that kind of brings brings it really to the to the heart of of what we're trying to do here, which is top down systemic change um, using the law where where it should be used better and um, turning our demands into a into a policy a policy change that any any government could take forward so i have in front of me the um climate and ecological emergency declaration emissions target and citizens assembly bill um which very succinct i mean uh, you know it, it has to sound like a bill i guess you can't <laughs> just call it like the, the ecological death bill or something which is i suppose in the states they probably would um and i, I see it, it it reflects the kind of um you know, tell the truth, you know, the Prime Minister must state emergency. But then we've got a, a Citizens' Assembly being set up. And I'm a big fan of Citizens' Assemblies. Um, and, I, and and the idea of the Citizens' Assembly 
is to deliberate and make recommendations regarding how the UK will achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and we've seen, I mean, this isn't pie in the sky because we've seen citizens' assemblies working in other countries, particularly Ireland, um, where they've been used really effectively to take the, the, take the not the controversy, but I guess take the um, rival nastiness out of hot issues like abortion, um, abortion rights in, in Ireland, um, where you get 100 people or however many randomly selected and they, they hear from experts over a number of months and they come up with some ideas and then you usually put it to the country by rec- by referendum or, or something like that. Um, and and has any of the, have any of the political parties um, taken this up or even close to taking it up? Not yet. I don't think so in terms of the bill itself or Citizens' Assembly. There was a parliamentary citizens assembly put forward but it's not binding and it's not exactly what we were sort of demanding so I think there was some controversy over that um the only kind of other element of this is that during this election we are um well a number a high number of people are on a hunger strike at the moment uh, globally um and in the UK the way that we're sort of um you know publicly doing the hunger strike is that people are sort of parking themselves outside party headquarters so that in the run up to the election, they are you know, saying this is how dire the situation is. And we're calling on you to have a meeting with us to hear our demands, to, to talk to us about the climate crisis. So I think that we're really pushing on parties and, uh, and, and that's all of them. Again, you know, we're not partisan. So we're, we're trying to put that same pressure on every single party, including the Brexit party. Um, and, you know, with, with the intention of making this mainstream this needs to be at the forefront of the election more than anything else okay now where where do you think we should be going next in terms of legal protections in terms of the human rights movement and environmental rights i think there's just a a couple of things so first is I think that the, you know, the special rapporteur on the environment and human rights has uh, 10 priorities um, that he set down. And I think that's a really good starting point. I would add gender equality to that or non-discrimination more generally. Um, But the first of those is for lawyers, he says, to educate ourselves about environment, the environmental laws that we have, um, and also the environmental laws that exist in different systems uh, to see what works. Um, So we talked a little bit about the rights of of nature earlier. Um, But I think another thing is that as lawyers where are we going uh, a part of that is also you know lawyers we're we're humans as well and about what we're doing in order to comply with our um our obligations under human rights law and sustainable consumption so I think really we're running up to a period which is the holiday season. Lots of people in this season tend to give gifts or, um, or uh, you know, decorate or wrap things up. And I think it's a time really for reflection as well as to how we consume and what we consume and how we can do that more sustainably as well. So that's, that's where I'm going with it at least the next few months. That's a great message to finish with. So... Kena, Tobias, Molly, thank you very much for joining me. Um, and we, where can anybody, does anyone want to recommend any websites um, aside from the XR website, which goes without saying people should read, where they can learn more about any of these issues? 
Well, Friends of the Earth have a have um, some really helpful web pages just on uh, reducing your plastic consumption, for example, uh, that that you can look at. But really, to be honest, you can just Google it, and there are articles now everywhere. You don't even need to Google it. You can just walk to a local charity shop and buy all your gifts there, so that they're secondhand. Um, yeah. And read the news. <laughs> read the news. Thanks very much. Thanks so much to Tobias, Molly and Kana for joining me on a really interesting discussion. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course tours in London. And if you're interested, you can apply or get more information at gold.act.uk forward slash law. If you find this podcast interesting or useful, then please help it continue by contributing a few pounds a month to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash better human. You can email me at adam at betterhumanpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter, behumanpodcast. Thanks very much for joining us. I'm Adam Wagner. This has been the Better Human Podcast. See you next time. Hold up. 